and open up the word of God to 1 Peter chapter 1. We will begin in verse 6. And Peter says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us, Lord. We thank you that in the midst of the trials that you take us as a church, Lord, you remain faithful, God, and you provide on time, Lord, and you equipped your church with so much gifts that are being expressed at this time, Lord. And Father, we just ask your blessing upon this building and the time that you have allocated us for us here. We, uh, we pray for um, our keiki, that they would be safe. Uh, we pray that you would inhabit the praises of your people, Lord, and that you would, Father, show us how we can, in the time that we have, impact the community that we are in, Lord. And Father, also at this time, we pray that you would bless the reading and the preaching of your word, that you would be with us by the power of your spirit, Lord, and teach us your good truths. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. It's kind of ironic that this particular text falls in line with the events that um, are going on in the life of the church. Um, it's undeniable that during these past two months, it can be signed, some, summed up as a trial. For some of us, it's been more than for others. But we have all experienced the effects of it in one way or another. We have all been shaken up a little. We have all been forced out of our comfort zone. And most of us have maybe even asked, why? Why, Lord, are you doing this? And that's why I'm excited for the text that we are in today. It's not coincidental that we are here. And it certainly wasn't planned by us. Uh, to be here at this day and at this time. But as we shall see, God is intimately involved in the life of his people. He is intimately involved in the trials that his children go through. And no matter how uncomfortable those trials might be, God has a purpose for them. And they are always for the good of God's people. And they're always for the good for God's church. So just to refresh our memory, I'm going to go into a little bit of the background of 1 Peter. It was written to uh, the churches that were scattered through Asia Minor, uh, which is modern-day Turkey today. Uh, Christianity was relatively a new movement at this time. As Peter is writing this letter, Christianity has been around for approximately 30 years. And unlike today, where much of our culture and social values are still rooted in Christianity. Back then, Christianity 
for the most part, is spreading through a very pagan world. And so as many of these Christians are uh, becoming believers, the lives that they used to live, the pagan lifestyles, the lifestyle of sin, they are leaving behind. They're, leave, they're living a radically different life from the rest of their society. And for that, they were slandered. They were mocked. They were considered antisocial. And these new believers, um, they were looked upon as people who worked against the society. And the result was that they experienced persecutions. At this time, there was no official government-mandated persecution, but the assault on the gospel in the day-to-day -day life of these Christians was real. And so Peter is the perfect man to write to these Christians and he is the perfect man to encourage them. He spent three years with Jesus as a disciple. He saw all the miracles that Jesus has performed. He heard all the teachings. He experienced Christ's death. And he saw and he knows that Jesus rose from the dead. He saw him ascend into heaven. And everything that Jesus foretold his disciples, everything that he said that will take place, has finally begun to unfold. So Peter, knowing the big picture, hearing it from Jesus himself, is the perfect man to respond to these Christians. And Peter doesn't give them five points of how to win over their neighbors and be a better friend. Peter doesn't give them ideas of how to make Christianity relevant and cool to the pagans. Peter doesn't remind them of their legal rights that they have as citizens and courts. In fact, he gives them very little practical advice. To these new Christians, experiencing this very real persecution, Peter addresses their problems, their outcries, their questioning with answers of faith. To deal with the visible struggle, he points them to the invisible. To the ones that felt out of place in their society, to the ones that felt a loss of identity, he points them to where they really belong, and he reminds them who they really are. And so often, uh, we as well, we can try to seek answers for the problems in our lives and things that are visible, but a lot of those answers are found and are resolved with faith and the assurance of the invisible. And so this morning, Peter begins our text, and he says in verse 6, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. And if we look at the Greek uh, text, verse 3 through 12 is one sentence. It's one very cohesive sentence. Uh, back then, people had the mental capacity to comprehend sentences with 250 words. We have lost that art. Um, and so verse 3 through 12, they're very interconnected. Peter is trying to communicate a very clear and unified message. And so when Peter begins this verse and he says, in this, we, in this you rejoice, we need to have the preceding verses in mind 
so that we can answer the question, what is Peter calling them to rejoice in? What those churches are going through, it grieves them. They are in sorrow because of the trials. The persecutions cost them great distress. And so in previous verses, Peter reminds them of who they are and why they are able to rejoice at this moment. Last week, uh, Raymond shared with us about God's kingdom. We talked about the nature of God's kingdom and our relationship to it. And so Peter in verse 3 tells us that we are born again to a living hope. When Peter followed Jesus as a disciple, he had hope. He had lots of hope. It was a high moment in his life. Peter was sure that Jesus was the Messiah. He was excited that he got to be in the inner part of of the circle of, of the friends of Jesus. Peter professed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God of the living, the Son of the Living God. But Peter also, at that time, had a lot of misplaced hope. He hoped that at some point Jesus will overthrow the governments and he will establish a kingdom on earth and that Peter would be a part of it. That was Peter's hope. And so when Jesus died, Peter's hopes died. But the resurrection of Jesus became the transformative point in Peter's life. When Peter saw the resurrected Jesus, hope became alive. Peter finally understood the true nature of God's kingdom. And so Peter encourages and tells the churches that you can rejoice in your trials because you have a living hope. I saw him. He's resurrected. Our hope is anchored in this resurrected Jesus. And the reality of Christ's resurrection will never change. It is a sure thing. The other thing that Peter reminds them of in verse 4 is the inheritance that they have. He says, The inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you by God. On earth, we have temporary inheritances that our parents or grandparents might leave with us. But then there's the inheritance that God has already prepared for his children. And this inheritance, it is yours forever. It doesn't perish. It doesn't get ruined or spoiled. This inheritance doesn't fade. It is eternal, just like your life in God's kingdom is eternal. So Peter says, in this you rejoice. In the living hope and in the inheritance that God has secured for you, in this you rejoice. And the joy that Peter speaks of, the joy that Peter is trying to have them tap into is does not flow out of anything earthly. It doesn't flow out of anything visible, but the joy that Peter is speaking of flows out of faith in what God has accomplished for his people. And as these Christians face trials and as they are grieved, Peter is reassuring them of their identity and the hope that they have. And as we dissect verse 6, 
we see a couple of interesting phrases that Peter uses to describe these trials. Peter could have just said, rejoice as you are grieving in these trials. But he adds these phrases. He says that these trials are for a little while and if necessary. And I just want to take a moment and dig in with you into these verses, into these phrases. Most commentators say that the phrase for a little while is referring to the time that God has assigned for us here on earth. It's not just a couple of years of trials and then you're set for life. Our life is filled with all sorts of trials. Peter, he wrote this epistle between 60 and 64 AD. Peter died at the latest, 68 AD. So 48 years after he wrote these words, Peter was crucified upside down. That was Peter's little while. If it even was possible for all of us to live an additional 100 years in light of eternity, it's still a little while. 30 years before this, Peter was banking on the fact that him and Jesus will take over the Romans and set up a government. Now, in only a matter of a few years, Peter will be crucified by the Roman Emperor Nero, and in the face of death, he says, it's only a little while we will be grieved. The second and very important phrase that Peter uses here to describe our trials smack in the middle of verse 6. It's the phrase, if necessary. That phrase is interesting because it implies that someone decides if our trials are necessary or not. And if it was up to us, if we controlled that necessity, we would probably choose not to go through trials. But we all know that we can't make that decision and we cannot stop the trials that come into our lives. So who decides if and when these trials would come into our lives? Who decides if they are necessary? And what Peter is doing is he's telling the Christian, he's telling the churches that these trials are not a coincidence. These trials are not random acts of life, random events that just happen to fall on us. God is sovereign over our trials. He allows them, and he is the one that decides when they are necessary. Just like the early church experienced trials of cultural backlash against their faith, our own culture today is intensifying its fight against Christian values. It doesn't take much to see the daily headlines that come across that continually target biblical principles. We are in a position where we can get pushback for just talking about our Christian convictions. Many of you might find yourselves at work or anywhere as you do your life around town, you find yourself starting to be conscious of what you are saying and how you communicate what you believe in. You are forced 
to pick battles. Our culture is changing. The early church experienced this as Christianity was entering into society. We are beginning to experience this as the culture is pushing out Christianity out of society. But trials, they're not limited to persecutions. There are many ways that God takes us through trials. It can be any kind of loss, sickness, death, family drama, challenging work situations, our friends, and the list can go on and on. God can use anything in our lives to take us through a trial. It doesn't have to be the culture. So what is the purpose of these trials? Verse 7, Peter continues and he says, In this you read, I'll, I'll read from 6, In this you rejoice though. Now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and honor and at the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There are many reasons that God takes us through trials. Every time God does something, it's not just one thing. He does a thousand things at once. But here Peter uses this analogy of gold and, and compares our faith to precious metals. In those days, uh, people used coins and uh, valuable metals as currency. They used it as money. Bronze, they had bronze, they had silver coins. But gold was the rarest and the most valuable coin that they had. It had gold had the most buying power. And in verse 7, Peter tells us that genuine faith is actually more precious than gold. It is far more valuable than anything we can get on this earth. No matter how pure or precious gold is, no matter how much buying power it has, it perishes. But our faith, our God-given faith, if proven to be genuine, it will never perish. So the first purpose that God has for our trials is to test if our faith is genuine and authentic. That's the first purpose. If anybody, any one of you ever buy an expensive item, um, a watch, some glasses, shoes, iPhone, and then you come home and you realize that it was fake, you bought it off eBay or pawn shop or something. Um, companies try their best to make sure that what you buy is the real deal. We have incorporated VIN numbers, uh, watermarks and cash and important documents. Uh, we have serial numbers on products. And all of those things are serve to help us verify that what we are buying is authentic. Well, one of the ways that God tests our faith, one of the ways he, we, we, we can see if it's the real deal or if it's superficial and fake, is through trials. And if our faith endures the trial, 
It's the real deal. It will continue on. If we truly believe that Jesus is God and that we are saved into his eternal kingdom, if we truly believe that, if all our hope is placed on that, when trials come into our lives and when our faith is put under stress and we are, when we are being shaken up, those trials will show what foundation we really stand on. But the purpose of trials are much greater than just proving the authenticity of our faith. Through trials, God also strengthens us. He strengthens our faith. Hardship builds character. When we endure through trials, that process reinforces our faith. It strengthens us. We can become more sure of our salvation through that process. We can become more sure of the things that we do not see. Trials are also used by God to discipline us. Trials set our mind back on track. They set our minds on things that really matter when we go off track. In chapter 4, Peter will come back to this topic of trials, and he says, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? God judges his own people, yes. It's called discipline. God is our loving father, and like every father who loves his children, God also disciplines us. It's a loving judgment. In Hebrews 12, uh, verse 5, we read, God says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. The fact that God, our Father, allows trials into our lives as discipline proves that he loves us and that we are his legitimate children. And the last purpose for trials that we will look at today, there's far more reasons, but that trials, they purify us. Peter gave us this analogy of gold. And when gold is mined, it comes out of dirt. There's a lot of impurities in it. And to make gold pure, it has to go through multiple steps of purification, including a furnace of fire to refine it and to bring out the full value of the metal. The heat is meant to burn away all the impurities in it. And so trials are God's means by which he burns away and gets rid of the garbage and the dirt in our lives. Because we still have residue of sin, we have residue of unbelief and mistrust in God. So God challenges our faith to prove himself faithful and so get rid of that mistrust. 
Proverbs 17, verse 3 says, The crucible is for silver, and the furnace is for gold, and the Lord tests hearts. He tests our hearts through the furnace. He tests our heart through the fire of trials. In the Old Testament, there was this man named Job. Uh, He was extremely wealthy and influential. He had a well-diversified portfolio, minimized his risk, and then God took him through the furnace. He took away his influence, his wealth, his family, his health. And we see here, Job is sitting with a scrap of a broken clay jar and he's scraping his sores. And in the midst of his loss, in the midst of his pain, Here's what Job says. It's in chapter 23. But God knows the way that I take. And when he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. After God takes me through the furnace of trials, I will come out as gold. Job had hope. Job understood what God was up to. And Job is a bright example for us of someone who had, his te- who had his faith tested. When all his earthly possessions vanished, his most loved ones dead, he still kept his eyes on the prize. His identity was still in God's kingdom. Those trials, they caused him great grief and they caused him great distress, but they did not derail his faith. And it was proven to be genuine and authentic. And in the process, God purified him and he strengthened him. Church, trials are not fun. We don't go into them with excitement. They bring pain. They bring distress. Trials bring confusion. But knowing that God is sovereign over trials... Understanding that he has a purpose for every trial. Knowing that it's only for a little while and if necessary. These truths, they should bring us much comfort and contentment when we go through them again. Trials may very well derail our life and bring much discomfort. But in our grief, we can rejoice because we belong to a different kingdom. And our identity is not in what we see and what we have, but it is in Jesus Christ, our living hope and the inheritance that he has secured for us in his kingdom. So we looked at the purpose, or we looked at the different reasons that God takes us through these trials. But what is the end result? What what is God trying to accomplish through all this? after, after a lifetime of enduring trials, after being tested and purified, what will be the end result? Peter says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In this life, we will be beaten down. We will be bruised and we will be tired. 
by the trials. It's not going to look pretty all the time. But those trials are purifying us. And the result will be a display of beauty of our precious faith. There will become a day when our faith will shine gloriously. We will shine far more than the purest of gold. And when will that day come? Peter says, at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When Jesus comes, when he displays his praise and glory and honor, those who have been found with a genuine faith, he will strip us of all pain and grief, and he will reveal our glory and honor. We are hidden with Christ right now, but there will come a day when he will reveal the true glory of his church. And in verse 8 and 9, in conclusion, Peter just bursts out in praise. He can't keep it in. He's amazed at the work that God is doing in the churches and the love that these people have for God. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Unlike these Christians, Peter had the unique opportunity to see Jesus and to do life with Jesus. Peter's mind was filled with amazing images and memories of Jesus. He saw all the mighty works displayed. He saw how Jesus loved people. And now the same love that Peter has for Jesus, with whom he spent all this time with, he sees this love in these churches. The same love that Peter was overfilled with is overfilling these Christians. And they've never seen Jesus, yet they love him. Yet they believe in him. They've never seen Jesus, yet they are willing to suffer for him. And not only suffer, but they are filled with joy. And Peter is amazed. And this is the testament to the authenticity of those Christians. Only the Spirit of God can produce this kind of affection and this love for Jesus. And thousands of years later, the same Spirit of God continues to be at work in his church. Our faith is not in something vague or something abstract. Our faith is clear. Jesus Christ is the object of our faith. And our faith is rooted in what he has accomplished in the past. It is rooted in what he is doing in our lives right now. He saved us and he dwells amongst us by his spirit. And with faith, we look to the future when he will come and redeem us and save us completely. And our faith and trust in Jesus is not something that we try to muster up. It's not something we try to do on our own. It's not this cold and distant faith. No, our faith in Jesus is real. It is filled with emotion. Church, you have not seen Jesus, yet you love him. You do not see him, but you believe in him. And that is evident. It is evident in our community. It is evident in the life 
and the trials that we are going through as a church right now. And the joy that is amongst God's people, it's evident and it's inexpressible. Apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, we are not able to muster this up. We are not able to experience this kind of faith. The work of the Spirit is evident in your lives. And that is a testament to the authenticity of your faith. And the result, Peter says, the outcome of this faith is future glory and it is salvation of our souls. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the work that you have accomplished on our behalf. And Lord, that you have not left us in our sin, but by the power of your Spirit, you revealed your Son to us. You have given us great faith. Lord, you have filled our hearts with joy. You have filled our hearts with love and belief in you, Lord. We cannot deny it. We cannot shake it off. The trials of life will not shake it off, Lord. And we thank you for the work that you are doing in our hearts, God. And Father, I pray as we continue to live out our lives, Lord, in the church, at work, with our families, and as we face our trials, Lord, may we be aware, Lord, of why you allow them. May we, be, may we understand why they are necessary, God. And may we know that you are sovereign over them and you have a purpose for them, God. And may we, even though we are grieved and even though we have pain, Lord, may joy fill our hearts, Lord, as the overwhelming emotion, Lord. We thank you, Father. We thank you for your goodness. And we thank you that we have a living hope. It is you, Jesus, our risen Savior. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.